Last time we were in 1 Samuel, uh, in, ver- in chapters 9 and 10, we saw that God was sovereignly working to appoint and equip Saul to be his first king of Israel. Uh, but most of that work was done privately. If you remember, Samuel found Saul and he anointed him. That was all done kind of in secret. And now in, at the end of 1 Samuel 10, we see God publicly appointing Saul as his king. So let's start reading in verse 27. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. As we look at this passage together, one of the things that keeps coming up again is God's choice. God's choice of Saul to be king. It's woven all the way through this passage. And that helps us to see the main point. The main focus of this passage is on God's wise choice of Saul as king to accomplish his plan for his people. That's what we see. God wisely chooses Saul as king to accomplish his plan for his people Israel. As we look at God's choice of Saul... We'll see three points. We'll see first a reminder of sin in verses 17 to 19. Then we'll actually see God's choice of Saul as king in verses 20 to 25. And finally, we'll see a spiritual division in Israel in verses 26 to 27. So first, a reminder of sin, verses 17 to 19. God is now ready to publicly appoint Saul as king of Israel, and Samuel calls the people together in the Lord's presence at Mizpah. And Samuel's opening speech to the people is another reminder of Israel's sin. We just read those verses, verses 18 to 19. Look at what Samuel reminds them. He speaks about God rescuing them from Egypt and about saving them from all the hands of the kingdoms that were oppressing you all the way through the desert, and all the way now through the time of the judges to the days of Samuel. And he says, now you've turned your back on God. 
You have rejected the God who has saved you. Israel's sin is wanting a king. It's not just wanting a king. It's wanting a king to replace God. We see more clearly why that rejection is so serious. Because God goes out of his way to remind Israel of how great his salvation for them truly has been. He's pointing them again, back again and again, walking them from Egypt forward to reflect on his saving power. In verse 19, God makes a similar point, not just about the past, but now about the present. God is the one who saves you right now from all your calamities and all your distresses. Anything that comes your way, God is the one who will be able to save you. He's proved that in the past, and he promises to do it now. But Israel is ignoring God's salvation and looking for help from a human king. You can feel the irony building during God's speech. He reminds them over and over again about who he is. He's the Lord. He's their covenant God. He's the God of Israel, not of some other people. He's done so much for them, and now they're turning around and asking him to replace himself with a human king. That's really what's going on here. If Israel didn't realize it by this point, they should now. They deserve God's judgment for what they're doing. God seems to drive home his points about Israel's sin by bringing them back to Mizpah. Did you notice that location? They're back at Mizpah. The last time that Israel was gathered there at Mizpah in the presence of the Lord was in 1 Samuel 7. That's when Israel returned to the Lord and began to serve him again, and he delivered them from the Philistines in a miraculous way. God bringing them back to Mizpah and then reminding them of their sin is like he's saying, you didn't need a king back then, did you? Why do you need a king now? Wasn't I enough? What happened to your repentance and faith of just a few years ago? God's choice of Mizpah is meant to remind them of his faithfulness and to remind them of their past repentance and to make them to consider again what they are doing and to give them one last chance to turn back to him in repentance and faith. We know that's not going to happen. And God has actually already appointed Saul to be their king. God has decided to grant Israel their sinful request for a king instead of leading them into full repentance. In the past few weeks, we've seen some of the reasons why God lets Israel continue in their sin. He uses a king as a judgment against them. We saw that in chapter 8. But he also uses even their sin of asking for a king to bring greater blessing through a king like David and ultimately through King Jesus. In 1 Samuel 10, in these verses here, we see that same combination of judgment and blessing as God makes his choice of a king abundantly clear. That does lead us to our second point, God's choice of a king, verses 20 to 25. God makes his choice of Saul clear for all to see by using lots. First, Samuel brings each tribe forward and Benjamin is chosen. Then the clans of Benjamin are brought forward and finally Saul himself is taken by lot. The reason God does this is to show no one 
will be able to dispute. No one's going to be able to argue anymore that whether God has chosen Saul to be king or not. God has made it very clear who is going to be king. And it's striking that as God grants Israel's sinful request to give them a king, he does so in a way that makes his own choice clear. I'm not saying that he agrees with their sin, but he is showing them that he remains completely in control even as they're trying to walk away from him. God's sovereign control appears again in verse 22 when the people can't find Saul. Now that he's chosen, he's disappeared. Remember, the people are trying to replace God with Saul, and yet they have to ask the Lord for help in finding Saul, their new king. We are meant to see the irony in this whole situation. They cannot get away from God. God's sovereign control is emphasized again in verse 24. Notice Samuel's words carefully. Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Saul is not the people's choice. He is the Lord's choice. But as as Samuel reminds the people that Saul is the Lord's choice, he also says that there's something different about Saul. There is no one like him among the people. But what sets apart Saul from all the people. If we back up to verse 23, we see that it's just his appearance. right? And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. God seems to have chosen a kind of king that the people of Israel wanted. Someone who looked like a king. Again, remember the description of a good king that we saw in Deuteronomy 17 where God describes what a king should be like. Looks were not part of that description. Faithfulness was. Again, see the irony in the passage. God is giving Israel exactly what they want. A king like all the nations over there, one who looks like the king. He is fulfilling their sinful request, maybe too well, for their own liking in the future. Saul's the kind of king Israel wanted, and he's the kind of king that Israel deserved. We start to see that there are problems with Saul. Look again at verses 22 to 23. When Saul is chosen, he's not there. He's hiding among the baggage. I don't, I don't think Saul's trying to be humble here. I don't think it's even right to say Saul is scared. I think Saul's being disobedient. Saul's being disobedient to God's word. Remember, Saul has received direct revelation from God through Samuel that he's going to be the next king. Right? Samuel anointed him. He told him all about it. And then God confirmed his choice by giving Saul sign after sign after sign. And the last sign was the greatest. God poured out his spirit on Saul to equip him to be king. So when Saul hides among the baggage, we see more than a scared king. We see a man who is disobeying God's private word to him and God's public word to the people. In these details here, we see the first sign of judgment against Israel. Saul will be the kind of king that they deserve because just like Saul walks away from God's word, that's exactly what Israel has been doing. 
They are rejecting God and his word through Samuel. But there's more here as well as we look at the problems with Saul. An Israelite who knew his Bible well should have been surprised that Saul was even chosen by God at all. After all, Saul's from the wrong tribe. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, do, you, do you remember Jacob's prophetic blessing on his sons before he died? He blessed all of his sons. And listen to what Jacob said about his son Judah. This is coming from Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So when God chooses Saul, God has purposefully chosen a king who is going to be temporary. Or at least his line will be, because the true king will come from Judah, not Benjamin. Now all of these details, the problems with Saul, they come into greater focus when we're reminded how clear God's choice of Saul really is. There's no question that this is the man that God has chosen. God chose a king who was from the wrong tribe, who had the wrong heart, and who had all the wrong qualifications. You know, what, what's going on? God's clear that this is his man. Why are there so many issues with Saul? Like I said, God's judgment on his people is becoming clearer and clearer as we learn more and more about Saul. But in these verses, we also see hints of God's grace as well. And I want us to keep those in mind as we move forward in later chapters about Saul's life and kingship, because we know Saul is going to be a very bad king by the end. But think of simple things like Saul being a Benjamite. That's judgment. We've seen that, but that's also grace from God, because as bad as Saul is going to get, his reign is only temporary. That's actually part of God's grace. And more importantly, if you think about the promise to Judah, that means that Israel should be expecting a true king, a better king, who's going to come from Judah. God shows that kind of grace and love that he has for his people in other ways as well in this passage. You see, for instance, his sovereign control and his grace in verse 25 as he lays out the laws about the kingship. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. Those rights and duties describing what the king is supposed to be doing, those aren't Samuel's ideas. He's not writing a constitution for Israel of his own design. No, we're supposed to see this event as Samuel the prophet writing down God's plan for the kingship of Israel. And that's reinforced because we see that this book is placed in the Lord's presence. Think about the other book that's been placed in the Lord's presence. It's the book of the law. See that at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses commands that the book of the law be written down and placed in the presence of God. This, this book of the kingship that we see in 1 Samuel 10, that's written by Samuel, it's meant to function in a similar way to the law. It is the standard by which every king will now be judged. And it's God's perfect standard that he's laid down. 
here again we see God's goodness and his grace because God lays out what is expected of the kingship. Even though Israel may want a king like all the nations, they will never get a kingship like all the nations. God makes sure of that. Just like the giving of the law is an act of God's grace and love, so the giving of the book of kingship is another act of God's grace and love for his people. He cares what the kings will do, and he's laying out the way that those kings will be the greatest blessing to his people. We don't know the details of what Samuel wrote in this book. doesn't tell us. But it's safe to say that Saul did not live up to, to God's standard. Uh, but here, too, as we look at the law, or the book of the kingship, and we look at Saul, we see there's hope. There's an expectation, because the ideal king should act like Samuel wrote, not like Saul did. And if God really wants his king to act that way, the people could hope that he would provide a king they needed. He would provide a king who would follow him and bless the people. We know that hope is first fulfilled not in Saul, but in David, who is described as a man, a king, after God's own heart. But we also know that that desire for a king who is going to rule in God's way is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who rules in the way God has designed to bring the greatest blessing to us as people. So as God chooses his king, as he chooses Saul, he is working judgment, the first steps of judgment in his people, but he's also giving them hints of his grace. But there's more in this passage. We see in these final two verses, verse 26 to 27, our third point this evening, which is a spiritual division in Israel. We see that God has chosen Saul, but Saul's kingship seems to begin with mixed reviews. Some men follow him while others reject him. But in each case, we see that there are spiritual issues at stake. Notice first God's work in verse 26. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. The author is very clear. These men followed Saul because God had worked in their hearts. That seems like a very interesting comment to make in this con context, because there could be lots of worldly reasons to follow Saul now. I mean, Saul is the new king. He's the new power broker in Israel. Wouldn't you want to get in on the ground floor of his reign so you can get a reward later? Or what about these men? These are men of valor. That means they're warriors in Israel. Maybe they, they wanted a little more adventure in their lives. Or maybe they were true patriots. They wanted to defend Israel. And they thought if they went with Saul, that would be their ticket to that kind of work. But none of those worldly reasons are the ones that are listed here. No, it's a spiritual reason. It's a spiritual work. God did a spiritual work in their hearts to follow Saul. God is gathering men in a remarkable way to serve his king. It might be surprising to see God at work in this way, given what we've just seen about the problems with Saul. But remember, 
that God has promised to use Saul. God has promised to use Saul in dramatic ways to save Israel from their enemies. He promised Saul that at the beginning of this chapter. That's one of the first things that Samuel says to him. God will use you to free Israel from the hand of her enemies. These men of valor who came around Saul, they may not have known that that was what God was doing, but already God is working to accomplish that gracious purpose to save Israel even through a flawed king like Saul. He is working out his purposes for his people. Now, as I said, the men of valor, they may not have known that Saul would save Israel, but we see in verse 27 there were other men, worthless fellows, it describes them, who doubted Saul was even capable of saving them. It says, and they despised him and brought him no present. Now, at face value, this seems like another political issue, right? They don't trust the new king. But at its root, it's actually a spiritual problem. Because by rejecting Saul, these worthless fellows are rejecting God. Saul is the one who has been clearly chosen by God to be their king. He is the king of Israel. He is the Lord's anointed. And these men could not have missed that fact. But now they doubt Saul, and they doubt God's plan to save Israel through Saul. This is a spiritual problem. This actually is demonstrating really the spiritual rot that is setting in through all of Israel. Even when God communicates his choice so clearly, even when he almost seems to slap them in the face to show who he is and what he's doing for them, they won't even take that. They would, be ra- they would rather make their own choice for their own king to save them from their own problems. You know, this isn't the only time that people, though, have questioned the ability of the Lord's anointed to save. And they have, and by extension, that kind of questioning is the questioning the authority of God himself to save through his anointed. We see that in the life of David when he's running away from Absalom. But we see it even more clearly as we look at the life of Jesus. We just read from Matthew chapter 27, and we saw that as Jesus hangs on the cross... There are the people walking by him who mock him, but it's also the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. They mock Jesus with words that are very similar to what we see here in 1 Samuel 10. They say he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Think about what the chief priests and the scribes and the elders are saying. Jesus was the Lord's anointed. He is the perfect king who came to seek and to save the lost and to bring God's kingdom. He was the only true and perfect king of Israel. He was the anointed one, full caps, the one chosen by God to do his work to bless his people. And as he died, it was the leaders of Israel who are the ones mocking him. They are revealing, for the not for the first time, but definitely for the clearest time, that they do not believe that Jesus is their king. Even though, notice, even though the signs of his kingship throughout his ministry were abundantly clear, 
even clearer in some ways than God's choice of Saul in 1 Samuel 10. They've seen his miracles. They've heard his preaching. They have heard him claim to be the Son of God. They quote him. They know who he says he is, and they reject him as king. Not only is he their king, he's also the perfect king. There is no way that they could find any fault with him, unlike what we've seen with Saul. And as the elders and the scribes and the chief priests mock Jesus, they're revealing that they do not believe that Jesus is the king who could save them. Even though, as they say with their very words, they were, as they say these things, as they mock Jesus, they are witnessing the very greatest act of salvation ever. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, saving his people from their sins through his suffering and death, the only thing that these men can say is that he cannot save himself, let alone anyone else. They're the worthless men of Jesus' day, even though they should know better. They're the ones who knew who Jesus was, and they're rejecting him, and they're rejecting his salvation. And as they reject Jesus, they're rejecting God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they're rejecting their only hope of salvation. Rejecting Saul was bad enough. We'll see that in chapter 11 next week. But rejecting Jesus is far more serious. It leads to eternal punishment in hell. This passage is really pushing us to consider our reaction to Jesus. Jesus, our King, where are you with Jesus? Have you bowed the knee and confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you accepted God's appointed king, God's anointed king, God's equipped king? Have you accepted God's king as your king? It's one of the things that this passage is pushing us to do, to consider our reaction to Jesus. But this passage also contains the gracious message of the gospel that we can proclaim to others. It's the message of the gospel that God has not given up on us, even though we've been just as sinful as the Israelites. We've rejected God as our rightful king. That's part of sin, is rebellion against God. God doesn't leave us there. God sends Jesus to be the king that we need, not, notice, not the king that we deserve. That's what makes bowing the knee to Jesus so great. Because God helps us to see the amazing grace and love he has for us in Christ, and he changes our heart to want no one else but Jesus as our king. This is the message of the gracious gospel kingship of Jesus that we can proclaim to others. But third and finally, this passage contains the gracious message of the gospel that we need to preach to ourselves also, not just to proclaim to others, but preach to ourselves, because our sin as Christians is exactly what the Israelites are doing here. We know God's covenant love. We know his salvation, and we still try to get away from him. We even ask him for things that are not good. And it's true that God will step in and God will discipline us at times, but he disciplines us as sons with the goal of bringing us to repentance and of pouring out his blessings on us. God never casts off any of us who are truly his. And Jesus' blood covers all of our rebellion and all of our desires, our sinful desires, 
that are really just insulting to God who loves us. Those sins are covered. They're dealt with. This is the grace of the gospel that we see here. And because God loves us in Christ, when we humbly look back at our sin and we begin to see it even more clearly as Israel will look back and see their own sin, as we do that in our own lives, we can be assured that God is not going to hold those sins against us. He's not going to hold them over our heads. No, we can be assured of his love and his unchanging plan to save us. So many times we want another king, whether it's ourselves, someone else, or something else. But God graciously brings us back time and time again to his own loving, gracious king, King Jesus. That is something to rejoice in and something, especially when you find yourself in your sin, to look to. We have a gracious king who meets us in all of our needs. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for King Jesus. We see that your choice of the king that we need is so clear. There can be no doubt in our minds that you, Jesus, are our king. And we thank you for the way that you've worked in our lives to bring us to that point of recognizing you as our king and rejoicing to serve you as our king. We thank you for your strong salvation, your gracious rule. We pray, Lord, that you would make us your people who love to hear you, who love to be with you and with one another and love to serve you. We thank you for your grace and love, especially when we are in our sin and we recognize our sin and we turn to you. Help us to see how much you do love us and to know that we are forgiven, that you have not given up on us, but that you will even use our sin to bring blessing and growth. We pray this now with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.